Welcome to the Royal Christian Centre Sermon Podcast. You don't, you don't come in and tell them all their faults and failings and then say, can we be friends? It's not how you normally start stuff. And God, of course, comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ and he reveals to us our need of him. You know, God had been laying the groundwork for some time. And the word of God, the law of God, it was so demanding, so completely demanding that it becomes evident right from the get-go. There's no way we can keep up to God's standards. We can't do it. And so it comes to uh, later on in the scriptures, and it's no wonder that the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short. We don't make the mark. Just this afternoon um, with my nephew, um, we were stood in the driveway after lunchtime and I was going to head off and uh, he came and he's very springy and he came bounding over and he, from a standing start, leapt up um, so high that I could catch him completely like this. And he was, well, he more or less got his legs wrapped around my neck, actually. He sprung up in the air and I said, you'd be really good at the high jump. And he said, I don't know what that is. He's not done it before. But he said, I have done this jump. I'm not going to demonstrate right now. Um, we did it quite a bit in the driveway, but hop, skip and a jump. Yeah, you know the one, triple jump. And he hopped and he skipped and he jumped and he's only young, but he can already do it way further than I can. And it's kind of slightly depressing. You know, we, we find that we can miss the mark in many ways. I don't know how athletic you are. You're looking at me like I was absolutely excellent at the high jump. And the, uh, no, maybe not. We miss the mark in so many ways. The Bible, and through means of the law, through means of things like these Ten Commandments, shows us that we miss the mark. Why would God do that? Why would he come and say you're not good enough? That doesn't sound nice. It doesn't sound kind. Why have we come here tonight? Why are we singing songs about such a God? Well, because he didn't leave it there, did he? See, God reveals to us our utter and complete need of him. But then he satisfies that need. God shows us that we can never be good enough to be in right relationship with him. And so what he does is he becomes the good enough. For anybody who recognizes that they need Jesus, he says, I will be everything that you need. And so when we read something like the Ten Commandments, and here really begins God's moral code, his way of, of showing to us our need of him, what we're finding out a little bit about is our, the state of our hearts, and we're finding out also about the goodness of God. And so what we're doing is we're, we're kind of flipping them on their head this morning. We began with commandment number 10. And what we were doing a little bit is, uh, you know, you imagine the solar system. Imagine all the planets swirling around the, the blazing heat and fiery brilliance of the sun. And we began kind of out there with Pluto. Is Pluto a planet? I forget. They say it is and it isn't. I, I feel bad for Pluto. It should be a planet. Let it be a planet. But we found ourselves in the outer reaches of the solar system. And there, God skewers our hearts. He recognizes and he tells us plain. 
that there's stuff going on inside every human heart that needs fixing. And over these next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of orbit our way in closer and closer and closer through these commandments, working all the way up to number one. And there we will find, not the fiery brilliance of the sun, but the inutterable brilliance of God. His fiery glory. And I tell you what, perhaps we're doing ourselves a favor by coming this way in. God's glory, his holiness, his brilliance, his beauty, his majesty, his power is so overwhelming that were it not for the grace of Jesus Christ to us, we'd be done for. We couldn't stand. We'd be consumed by God's glory. But he cares for you and he cares for me. As weak and as frail and as fragile and as inadequate as we are, And he's making a way for us. Can the law, can these Ten Commandments show us something about that way? The commandment next up in our kind of reverse list. And if you want to have a look at them sometime, you'll find them in Exodus chapter 20. After having looked this morning at you shall not cover, you shall not long for that which you don't have and which other people have... We find that the next commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You might say, well, that sounds very simple. Don't tell fibs. I say, well, are we done? Can we go have another cup of coffee now? Well, there's more to it than that. And I said this morning that when we look at these commandments, it's almost like looking at an onion. An onion's not a beautiful thing. But it is quite complex. It has many layers. And as we go layer by layer by layer, we get really to the heart of the matter. We can do exactly the same thing with this commandment. Why would a person bear false witness against their neighbor? Why would they say something that wasn't true against somebody of whom they know the truth? Let's peel away some layers of the onion. There was a, um, an MP a little while back. He was a guy who had a really good start in life and uh, came from a good family by all accounts. And uh, he ended up going to Oxford University, would you believe, and got his degree there. And he did pretty well in business and in various ways and built up something of an empire for himself and determined to move into politics And he became an MP. I'm not going to tell you which uh, party, but I'm sure you'll guess by the time we get along. And he rose to various levels of prominence and ended up being a junior minister within the cabinet and uh, a privy councillor. Does anybody know what that is? Uh, uh, The only thing I know a privy is, is it's another name for a toilet. So I don't know whether it's something to do with that. But uh, he became somebody who had really high status, a great job, a decent amount of wealth, and he looked like he had all things together. And yet, as we saw this morning when we thought about coveting, it doesn't really matter what's going on the outside so much as what's going on on the inside, what's going on in the heart. You see, this gentleman, he wasn't satisfied with what he had. Maybe he needed to look at that 10th commandment himself. And so he was scheming and trying to find ways to do deals with various people, using things that were pushing the boundaries of the law, and in fact, probably just plain breaking the law. 
And this gentleman then became subject to a newspaper expose. And the Guardian newspaper in this instance found evidence that this man had been basically bribing people to get what he wanted while he was still within his government position. For those of you with longer memories, you might have an idea as to who I'm talking about. This gentleman was a man named Jonathan Aitken. And when he was faced with all of these dark and dismal secrets being brought to light, he decided, well, do you know what? In my heart of hearts, I know I've been deceitful. I know I've done what's wrong, but I'm going to double down on my deceit. Have you ever been caught out in life? Have you ever been caught out doing something that's wrong or saying something that's not true? There's a temptation in the moment, isn't there, to stick to your guns and to say, no, I'm not wrong. You're wrong. And just to really kind of say, well, I'm right, and to try and tough it out, and he determined to do so. And as I was reading about this gentleman's story, I found this quote of his, because he decided not only would he say it's not true, but he'd take the newspaper to court to prove that he was right, even though he really wasn't right. It's getting complicated, isn't it? And I read probably one of the most pompous statements that you will ever hear in your life that came from the lips of this gentleman. As he said this, if it falls to me to start a fight to cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism in our country with the simple sword of truth and the trusty shield of British fair play, so be it. It sounds very pompous, doesn't it really? And he went on, I am ready for the fight. The fight against falsehood and those who peddle it. My fight begins today. Thank you and good afternoon. And you imagine him, don't you, swirling around on his heel and striding off in some sort of self-righteous cloud of dust or something or other. And four million pounds in legal fees later and a divorce and his good name and the name of his family dragged through the mud, he was found to have been lying all along. Lying about the first thing. Lying about lying about the first thing. Convicted then of perjury and sentenced to jail for 18 months. And I, I, if I remember rightly at the time, people said it should have been a lot longer. He served, I think, seven months. He was well behaved. That's not really the most significant thing. While he was in prison, by a number of various circumstances, but we can believe by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the faithful witness of Christians, this man came to faith in Jesus Christ. And his life was turned around. He came out from prison and resolved not really to kind of restore his good name he knew what he had done was wrong by this point but he determined to live a different way in a later interview uh, this time with the Telegraph newspaper I don't know whether he ever interviewed with the Guardian I'm not sure <laughs> he talked about the horror of that time about going bankrupt and about the way that what had been a lavish and rich lifestyle was flipped completely to one where he was trying to make ends meet. 
And he talks about the pain of it and asked, was it painful? He said, it was in many ways. I went through defeat, divorce, disgrace, bankruptcy, and jail. That's a royal flush of crises by anyone's standards. It was painful financially, certainly, but not as painful as getting divorced or going to jail. And I'd put being broke third or fourth. The worst thing was not being able to provide for my children. I minded not being the provider of the family, but I managed. And he goes on to say, Do you know, I went back to Oxford as a student to study theology. He said, most of my fellow students were training to be priests and were almost poorer than I was. It was hard, but although I was broke, it wasn't a breaking experience. I accepted that life had changed and got on with it. I learned how to manage quite quickly. I exchanged mammon for God. He's making reference to the idea in the Bible that you can't serve mammon, that is, that is the accumulation of wealth and God at the same time. His life was changed. And he has uh, changed uh, dramatically and he has often talked about this journey of change and how God stepped in at that moment of utter breaking. But he stands, I think, for us as something of a, a parable, something of an instruction as to what it is to recognise the truth and the importance of this commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. It matters. It's significant. Peel away the onion. Why might you bear false witness? He was motivated by greed. He was motivated by wanting more. He was motivated by pride. That sense of self that says, I'm above this. I can do what I want. The rules don't apply to me. He was motivated by a sense whereby he was very far away from trusting in God for what was right. Rather, he trusted in his own ability to scheme and deceive and get where he wanted to go. And all of this wrapped up becomes that ball of lies, of deceit. And he reaped a terrible whirlwind. Bible makes really plain how devastatingly bad is uh, deceit and lies. In the book of Proverbs, we find on half a dozen occasions, um, ideas of lying opened up for us. And in Proverbs 21, 28, it says, a false witness will perish. That's dramatic, isn't it? Lies linked to death. But then it says, but the word of a man who hears will endure. I wonder if we can see that in Jonathan Aitken's life, that the, the falseness, this desire to deceive, to do what was wrong, led him to a place where really so much of his life perished. He was in genuine danger and despair. But then comes a moment. Why does the proverb pair lies, not with truth, but with listening? I think we can see it in his life. 
while he was busy telling these lies, while he was busy building up this idea of his own sense of self and, and doubling down on it, even willing to go to court to try and prove that he was true, even though he was far from it, he was in peril of, of, of death, in peril of separation from God. But there came a moment in his life when he listened. He listened to God. He listened to God, pricking the balloon of his pride, of his sense of self, and telling him, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's a hard thing to hear, but it's necessary for every one of us. We need to hear from God the truth that we have been wrong. And we need his rightness. Stop with the falsehood of self and pride. Stop with that pompous deceit of saying I'm good enough, what I'm doing is just fine. Don't just try to flip a switch and turn yourself from lies to truth. Hey, how about just being quiet for a moment and listening to God? How about listening first to the one who is truth and can speak truth? into our lives I wonder how often do you find some stillness find some peace and say to God would you speak some truth into my life I talk a lot but I'm conscious that a lot of it is junk God would you drop just one word of goodness into my life would you really turn me upside down with a word of truth I need to hear your truth Later in the book of Proverbs, we find another powerful way of looking at truth and lies. And in Proverbs 25, it says this, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Now, I know that sounds kind of cool, um, particularly for younger gentlemen. War club, swords and sharp arrows is like, yeah, um, this is not a good thing. What it means is that to bear false witness against your neighbor is like whacking them around the head with a club. That's what it's like. You know, we, we get this sense that just a few little words of deceit are neither here nor there. That if we just speak something ill of somebody, well, it may not matter. It might not amount to very much. The Bible says, no, it matters. It counts. Puffs up the sense of pride at the expense of somebody else. It's all about getting to the top of the heap and it ain't, doesn't really matter who you clamber over to get there. That's what the Bible is saying here. Don't bear false witness. Be true, be true, be true, even if it means you're last. Be true, even if it means you appear to be the most humble. Be true, even if it means that everyone else seems to get ahead. Be true. What does the Bible go on to say? Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. I love the Bible. It just comes right down to it, doesn't it? It says, imagine the worst bit of toothache that you've ever had. Imagine it. Some of you have obviously never had toothache because you're just looking really plain and serene at the moment. Imagine that pain. Our little lad at the moment is cutting some teeth. I don't know who's in more pain, him or his parents. Uh, no, it's him. It's definitely him. It's not nice. It's hard work. It's painful. 
The Bible says that somebody who is not truthful, is treacherous, is full of deceit, is just like that. Or a foot that slips. Just yesterday I happened to be in Chester and I saw a lady and she was walking down some steps and she was in, well, frankly, ridiculously high heels. I have no idea how people do it. It's really, I should try it sometime and figure out how is it, how is it possible? There she was teetering along on these kind of foot-long heels or whatever they were and sadly she took a tumble. You're very nice people, you're very kind and people came to help her and helped her up and she was fine. A foot that slips, a trip, it's like tottering around on heels that really are entirely unmanageable. That's what deceit is like. There was a time in Jonathan Aitken's life when that's who he was and he reaped the perishing of that. It was the perishing of his marriage. It was the perishing of his family life. It was the perishing of his career and of his good name. It was the perishing of his freedom even as he was thrown into prison. But through God's grace, through the puncturing of his pride, he came from deceit to truth. Through shutting up with the lies and listening to the word of God, he changed. He's changed from being a kind of person who, well, he wouldn't ever lean on for anything to now being the, the president, if I know rightly, of an organization called Christian Solidarity Worldwide. It's an organization that looks after Christians who are in peril and need and under oppression all around the world. He's become the kind of guy that you can depend on. He's become the kind of guy whose life is actually about being substantial and true and dependable. What a turnaround. It's incredible. It's incredible. And again, when we think of the things that we speak, when we think of what we say, do we want to be treacherous, full of deceit, that our words lead to perishing, whether for ourselves or for others? Do we want to be like a bad toothache or a wobbly heel? Do we want to be that flaky? Or do we want the words of our mouth to have more meaning? Matthew chapter 18. Jesus Christ speaks to us and he says this. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And really I want us to come to this place for a moment or two and we'll worship again shortly what's coming out of your mouth is it honest is it true is it false witness are you dependable are you the kind of person that brings life to your neighbor or deceit to your neighbor jesus says if two people you can imagine can't you a friend and their neighbor a husband and wife two people agree on anything if they are talking about the things of God's kingdom in agreement then it'll be done God's kingdom could come to earth because of honest Christians in agreement with one another speaking life one with another or you can bear false witness you can speak ill of one another whether it be true or not who cares bring treachery bring death 
or bring peace and bring life. I wonder, just for a moment, could we consider, could we consider what kind of puncturing of pride we need? I pray, God, that none of us would need to go through what poor Jonathan Aitken went through to come to this realisation. He was wrong, but he went through the mill to find the right way. Here tonight, God's gracious to us and he makes a much simpler way. And he says, what will you say? What will you say? Can I invite you to bow your heads in prayer for a moment? What will you say? It's a very hard thing when God comes to us and tells us that we're wrong. When he punctures our pride or our self-importance. When he tells us that we have been speaking what is untrue. That we are treacherous flaky but God may speak such things to us so that rather we become people who speak life it's a choice that lies before us it's the same choice God always gives us will you choose death or will you choose life I wonder would you have the courage to have a look at yourself Say, am I a truthful, trustworthy person? Am I the kind of person who comes alongside others and agrees with them about the things of God to see those things come into being? Or am I the kind of person who doesn't come alongside people at all, speaks about them behind their back instead? Do I speak life or do I speak death? Truth or falseness? God challenges us today. Whenever God challenges us, he doesn't do so just so that we would make a right choice, although that's good. It challenges us, in fact, so that we might be changed. Sometimes the, the, the tougher it feels, the greater the change, the greater the potential. And God speaks to us today and he says, do you want to change? Not just do you want to change your behavior, but do you want to be changed? Do you want to be somebody who is not just truthful, but is full of truth? God says, in fact, you can be like Jesus Christ, my son. That's the promise, that's the offer, that's the possibility. It's glorious. We're getting a little bit closer in to our solar system's heart, blazing brilliance of God himself. Who's willing to humble himself before the Lord? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I wonder this evening if we might do something that is practical. 
And let's make it perhaps, if we can, a statement of our intention as believers. If you're up for it, would you perhaps just briefly speak to somebody who's near you and say, I want to be a person who speaks truth and speaks life. What can I agree with you about in prayer? What is it of God that we can agree about that it might come true, that it might come to pass? If you're willing to say, through this action, I declare myself to be a person of truth. Through this action, I say, I'm not satisfied with the pride of my own selfishness. I want to humble myself before God and see him do incredible things. If that's you this evening, I'm not inviting you to put your hand up or to come to the front or anything like that. I'm inviting you probably to do something much more trying and challenging. There's huge potential here. You see, if two of you agree on anything concerning God's kingdom, it'll be done. So this evening, if you want to resolve not to be a speaker of lies, but somebody who joins with another in truth, in the truth of God, then would you just go right ahead and speak to somebody near you and say, hey, can we join together in something that is true in God? Just talk for 30 seconds, pray for 30 seconds, and then let's worship God together. If you want to do this this evening, speak to someone near you say can I join you if there's no one near you can I invite you to stand up and go to somebody <laughs> it's not too difficult